0: Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux, and your host here on Last Week in the Church. This is the show where we sort of sort through the harvest, the journalistic harvest from the last week, and try to pick out those fruits, those crops that are of special interest. Here's what we've got on the menu for you this week. First, the Pope pushes back. In an in-flight news conference on Sunday, Pope Francis took aim at some of his critics who on the occasion of the death of Pope Benedict XVI suggested tensions and divisions between what you might call the Francis and Benedict wings of the church. Second, all about Africa. Over the weekend, Pope Francis wrapped up a five-day trip to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. The Pope went as a pilgrim of peace. We'll try to give you the highlights. Third, On to India. The Pope has announced that he plans to visit the world's most populous nation next year in 2024. We will explain why this could actually be, if not the most consequential trip of his papacy, certainly one of the top two or three. Next, the Pope's kind of American. The Pope appoints an American to be the Vatican's new kingmaker, the official in charge of naming bishops all around the world. We'll explain why he's illustrative of the kind of American that Pope Francis seems to like. And then finally, a big thing in a small package, why a story about three obscure nuns in a convent you have never heard of on the Amalfi Coast in Italy nevertheless illustrates a large truth about the Roman Catholic Church. All of that and more is waiting for you on the other side, so please stick around. All right, everybody, thanks for being with us here on Last Week in the Church. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, February 7th in the year of our Lord 2023. We begin this week with the Pope Pushes Back. So, Pope Francis on Sunday returned from Juba, the capital of South Sudan, at the end of his Africa trip, which we'll talk about in a moment. And as he always does, he Conducted an in flight press conference with the 60 or so journalists who were on the papal plane covering the trip. Footnote What made history in this press conference is that for the very first time, it was not a solo act. The Pope was actually joined by Archbishop Justin Welby of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland, Ian Greenshield. This is because those two ecumenical partners had joined Pope Francis for the trip to South Sudan. Now, the Pope touched upon several points in this press conference, reiterated his desire, for instance, to visit both Kiev in Ukraine and also Moscow in an attempt to put an end to the war in Ukraine. He, along with Welby and Greenshields, repeated their opposition to the criminalization of homosexuality. So you have a sort of united ecumenical front there. From an inter Catholic point of view, anyway, probably the most interesting comments from the Pope came when he was asked whether on this trip he had felt the weight of the divisions that opened up in Catholicism after the death of Pope Benedict XVI on December 31st. Now, as we have talked about previously on this show, after Benedict died, I mean, we hadn't even buried him yet before a sort of torrent of new titles, a Vesuvius of volumes, a harvest of hardbacks, a cacophony of new books, either by or about or somehow touching upon, Benedict XVI came out. And some of them proved to be highly controversial. There was the book by Archbishop Georg Gainswein, the closest aide to Pope Benedict XVI, in which Gainswine talked about some tensions between Benedict and Francis some disappointments that Benedict had felt particularly regarding Francis's handling of the traditional Latin mass and also the issue of communion for divorced and civilly remarried Catholics there was also a kind of tell all interview book with German cardinal Gerhard Müller former prefect of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith who was removed by Pope Francis and a very close friend of Benedict Müller talked about how there's a kind of magic circle around Pope Francis of theologically Underqualified individuals who exercise, in Mueller's view, disproportionate influence on making decisions. He accused Francis of being peremptory in his judgments, of disregarding procedure and law, and other alleged offenses. So Francis was asked how he felt about all of that. And basically, what the Pope said was that he felt that some parties, now he did not name names, but I think we all know who he's talking about, said some parties were instrumentalizing the death of Pope Benedict in order to serve their own personal interests. He said further that these are people without ethics. And he said they belong to a political party, not to the Catholic Church. And so it was a kind of full court rejection. Pope Francis went on to insist that there were no problems between himself and Benedict XVI. In fact, he insisted they had a very warm and close relationship. He told a story of one time when Pope Francis has said that he was in favor of gay couples being able to, for instance, for inheritance rights being established under civil law as a part of civil union arrangement. For gay couples, not sacramental marriage, but a civil union. He said somebody had gone to Benedict to complain about that position, and that Benedict had called four cardinals whom he respected for their theological judgment, asked them to weigh in on it. They said there was no problem with supporting inheritance rights for gay couples, and Francis said that was the end of it. He said he told that story to illustrate that Benedict was fine with what. Pope Francis was doing, and further, Francis insisted that Benedict was not embittered about anything going on. this because in Gainswine's book, and in an interview Gainswine did with the German press after Benedict's death, Gainswine said that Pope Francis's decision to reverse permission that Benedict had given for wider celebration of the traditional Latin mass had, in, Benedict, in Gainswine's language, broken Benedict's heart a little bit. And Francis was obviously claiming this is not so. Now, it will be interesting to see what the reverberations of these papal comments are. Uh, my suspicion is that some of Francis's critics will claim that Francis is actually instrumentalizing Benedict a little bit by claiming that there were no tensions, were no problems that Benedict agreed with everything that he is doing because the record would suggest probably that there were at least a couple of areas where Benedict maybe would have had a slightly different outlook on things. That, of course, is completely natural and inevitable, but nevertheless, a fact that Pope Francis's comments, at least at face value, could be taken as sort of glossing over. The one thing I think you can probably take to the bank is that the Pope did not lay to rest the tensions that were exposed with the death of Benedict XVI. Those tensions will undoubtedly continue to be with us. One other interesting footnote is that Pope Francis said, faced with this kind of criticism, he prefers to just ignore it and, and let it sort of collapse under its own weight. Interesting he should feel the need to therefore address it at such length in a live news conference, but in any event, now we know what Francis thinks. All right, now as I said at the beginning, this news conference came at the conclusion of a five-day trip that took Pope Francis to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. It was the Pope's fifth trip to Africa and his third to sub-Saharan Africa. The choices were intentional. Both the DRC and also South Sudan are African nations that have been torn apart by ongoing conflict, armed conflict and civil war. The Democratic Republic of Congo has been wracked by violence, particularly in the eastern part of the country, really, ever since the the War of the African Great Lakes in the late 90s and early 2000s. South Sudan, which gained its independence in 2011, quickly lapsed into a civil war in 2013, which in various forms continues to go on. And Pope Francis clearly wanted to go to these two places as a sort of pilgrim of peace. In both places, the Pope pursued a strategy of addressing himself certainly to the political leadership, both in Congo and South Sudan, but also trying to reach over their heads to some extent, speaking directly to the people in both of these countries, civil society, especially youth, insisting that they needed to be the basis of a different future, a future based on peace and reconciliation, not on hatred and conflict, challenged. In both of these nations to move beyond tribal, ethnic, religious conflict, also geographic and sectarian conflict, and to sort of embrace a, a different way of relating to one another. Now, look, this is the kind of rhetoric that the Pope engages in pretty much every place he goes, of course. But here's the thing Congo and South Sudan are both places where the Pope has a kind of unique capacity, at least potentially, to make a difference. Democratic Republic of Congo is the most populous Catholic nation in all of Sub-Saharan Africa. Every week, if you look at mass attendance rates, there are something like thirty-seven and a half million Congolese who show up at church every Sunday. They are practicing Catholics. That is the third highest total in the world, after Philippines and Mexico. That is an enormous pool of Catholics, and it suggests the kind of footprint that the church has in Congolese society. Bear in mind, the Democratic Republic of Congo is one of the few nations in the world where a Catholic bishop was once the head of state. The late Cardinal Laurent Monswengo, during the transition from Zaire to Congo, served as the head of the Constitutional Council that negotiated that transition, which made him, in effect, the head of state, head of government. And that, too, is illustrative of the importance of the Catholic Church in Congolese affairs. In South Sudan, Catholic radio was really the communications infrastructure of the independence movement. Some two-thirds of the population in South Sudan is Catholic. The church is enormously important in terms of the life of that society. So in both places, these are locations where the pope has an opportunity to move the needle. Now, it's going to take some time to determine whether that actually happened on this trip. Certainly, the, the Congolese and the South Sudanese both seemed enthusiastic about the prospects. We're going to have to see whether this is one of those trips that actually changed history or whether it turned out to be more ephemeral than that. But one thing we can say is that these two nations are, in a sense, acid tests of the Pope's capacity to make concrete and meaningful social and political change Because certainly in both places, the stars are aligned demographically and religiously, socially, culturally, to give him that opportunity. All right, third up this week, on to India. So in that in-flight press conference, the Pope was also asked about upcoming trips. And one of the things he mentioned is that he would like to visit India, or that he intends to visit India in 2024. When Prime Minister Narendra Modi visited Pope Francis in the Vatican in 2021, he extended an invitation to the Pope to visit the country and preparations have kind of been underway ever since. Here's why I would submit to you that assuming that that trip happens, it could be one of the most important trips, not just by Pope Francis, but really by any Pope in the early part of the 21st century. And it's because of what is currently happening in India, which, let us remind ourselves, is now the world's most populous nation. It has taken over the number one spot from China. It has the world's fifth largest economy. It is an emerging superpower. Let me give you just a few different news stories that have been percolating in India in recent days, and then we'll try to figure out what they all add up to. First, on January 30th, India marked the 75th anniversary of the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, unquestionably India's greatest national hero, the hero of India's independence movement. The interesting thing about it is that in India itself, almost as much attention was paid on this anniversary to the man who assassinated Gandhi, who was a 37-year-old Hindu nationalist by the name of Ram Godse, as to Gandhi himself. There has, in recent years, been a reevaluation going on in which the right-wing nationalist Hindu constituency in India is increasingly vocal in depicting Gandhi as a failure, as a man who capitulated to the partition of India, that is, to the creation of the independent state of Pakistan, which, in their view, sort of mounted to a kind of vivisection of India. And therefore, correspondingly, to treat Godse, the assassin, as a sort of hero. Okay, that's story number one. Story number two. In eastern India, in a state in eastern India, there are several dozen traditionally Christian villages that have recently been attacked by militant Hindu nationalists. A handful of people have been killed, scores have been injured, hundreds if not thousands have been displaced. Churches have been burned, these villages reduced to kind of piles of rubble. This has been going on since December with a fairly anemic response, frankly, from police and security officials. Many human rights experts are warning that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Also, in December, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom bitterly complained that the U.S. State Department had not included India as a country of particular concern for egregious religious freedom violations. In January, a organization of Indian Christians in the United States released its annual report on religious freedom violations and anti-Christian persecution in India. It calculated that for the year 2022, there were 1,198 acts of violence and physical harassment directed against Christians in India. If you're counting, that's more than three such acts every day for 365 days throughout the year. Also estimated the total property damage as a result of anti-Christian attacks at around $100 million. And then the last thing that happened is that the BBC in January brought out a new documentary on Prime Minister Modi. Focusing on his role when he was the chief minister of Gujarat State in anti-Muslim riots in 2002 that left about 2,000 people dead, it quoted a previously secret, previously unpublished internal British government report that blamed Modi directly for those deaths, saying he had told police and security officials in Gujarat to stand down for three days as this violence played itself out because he felt it would be electorally useful for his party, the the right-wing Hindu nationalist party, the BJP in Gujarat. And in fact, the BJP swept the elections in Gujarat later in 2002, and this helped propel Modi to the prime ministership in 2014. What does all this add up to? What it adds up to is that there is something going on in India called the saffronization of the country. That is, Gandhi's vision of a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society is being replaced with the vision of India as a Hindu nationalist state in which identity is not based on citizenship, it's based on religious identity. And the symbols of Hinduism are increasingly being adopted as the symbols of the state. It is making life increasingly difficult for religious minorities. The danger here is that India could become a much larger and more dangerous version of the Taliban in Afghanistan. I refer to it in my column this week as the danger of the Saffron Taliban. Now, Pope Francis, when he goes to India, has three solid reasons for wanting to try to nudge Modi in a different direction. Number one, even though Catholics are only 1.5% of India's population, Given how enormous that population is, that still adds up to about 20 million Catholics, and by the middle of the century, it should be about 26 to 30 million. That would make India the fifth largest Catholic nation in the world in which English is a primary language. It's important. And so the pastoral well-being of that community is important. Second, Catholicism has a rich tradition of social teaching, which could help India navigate the risks of this slide Into kind of a fundamentalist populist nationalism. However, if an increasingly difficult climate for religious freedom muzzles the voice of the Catholic Church, then that opportunity would be lost. Third and finally, the reason that nobody else is challenging India on any of this stuff right now, the reason why the United States and the other Western powers aren't doing it, is because the United States and the Western powers want to promote India as a strategic counterweight to China. So they are willing to gloss over or to ignore problems with India's record because, frankly, they're all scared to death of a new Cold War with China. Now, the thing of it is, the Vatican is not in the same position. The Vatican actually today has relatively decent relations with China. Of course, it has signed this controversial deal over the appointment of Catholic bishops in China, which has opened new lines of communication. By all indications, the Chinese authorities are, reasonably grateful and reasonably receptive to this move by the Vatican, which means the Vatican is not as scared of China as the as Western powers are, as many other global actors are these days, and therefore may be in a stronger position to be a little bit more frank with Modi and the BJP and the architects of this saffron wave crusting across contemporary India. Look, here's the thing. As bad as the Taliban and Afghanistan were, it was relatively easy for the United States and Western its Western partners to kind of corral them and contain them. If India were to become a saffron version of the Taliban, I remind you, we are talking about a nuclear power and the fifth largest economy in the world. The consequences, the destabilizing consequences of such a trajectory in India are infinitely more alarming, and therefore the possibility that the Pope could play a role in avoiding such a scenario may be one of the most consequential geopolitical possibilities for the Vatican in this century. It's going to be a fascinating, fascinating trip to watch. All right, fourth up this week, Pope Francis has named an American, Bishop Robert Francis Prevost, Chicago native, as the new prefect of the Vatican's dicastery for bishops, This is the uber-powerful department in the Vatican that recommends new bishops all around the world to the Pope. Now, of course, it's technically the Pope who appoints bishops, but in most cases, he simply takes the top pick that what used to be the Congregation for Bishops, now the Dicastery for Bishops, gives to him. That means that this department is responsible for selecting the, the new generation of leaders of the Catholic Church all over the world, it is an enormously consequential rule. Many people talk about it as the Vatican's king making department. Prévost replaces Canadian Cardinal Mark Roulette, who is 78, who resigns amid sexual harassment charges leveled against him by two different adult women. Cardinal Ouellette has vigorously rejected and denied those charges. He is actually countersuing one of the women seeking sort of a defamation verdict. Provost steps into that role, and it is interesting because Pope Francis has turned to an American to play this critical, ultra-important role inside his Vatican. Now, you know, from the beginning it has been said that Pope Francis has a kind of love-hate relationship right, with the United States, that he's kind of ambivalent about it, like many Latin American bishops, knowing the checkered history of American involvement south of the border, you know, some have detected a kind of shoulder about the United States. But, you know, it is worth saying that by naming Provost as the new head of the, the Dicastery for Bishops, he probably sets him up to become a cardinal the next time he holds a consistory. That's the event in which new cardinals are created. He would become the sixth American cardinal Pope Francis would have created. This is a group that includes Cardinal Blaise Cupich of Chicago, Cardinal Joseph Tobin in Newark, Cardinal Wilton Gregory in Washington, Cardinal Robert McElroy in San Diego, and Cardinal Kevin Farrell, formerly the Bishop of Dallas, who now runs the Pope's Dicastery for Family, Laity, and Life and is considered one of his closest aides. So, you know, despite these perceptions, of a kind of hostility or ambivalence to American Catholicism, the truth of it is that Pope Francis is in many ways quite reliant on this coterie of important American prelates to advance his agenda. Now, with Provost likely becoming the sixth American red hat on Pope Francis's watch, we can kind of sketch a profile of the kind of American that seems to play well with Pope Francis. Number one, there's the obvious political point that they need to be sort of center-left, moderate to progressive, both in terms of secular politics and also theology. To put this in American Catholic terms, they need to be part of the Joseph Bernadine School of American Catholicism. That's the late Cardinal of Chicago, who was the captain of the kind of center-left, Vatican II, reform-oriented wing in the church, not part of the John O'Connor Bernard Law axis, axis rather, in the American Church that looms so large during the John Paul II years. Second, it is very helpful from Pope Francis's point of view if an American bishop has some missionary experience, has some global seasoning. Provost has spent the last several years as a bishop in Peru, for instance. Cardinal Tobin. In Newark, for 13 years, was the superior of the Redemptorists, traveling all around the world to visit Redemptorist missions, so forth and so on. McElroy stands, of course, in San Diego, stands at the border between the United States and Mexico, and sort of the gateway to Latin America. Third and finally, Pope Francis also seems to like Americans who have backgrounds in religious life. Tobin, as I mentioned, was a Redemptorist. Cardinal Kevin Farrell was a member of the Legion of Christ before he left early in his career. Provost was the superior of the Augustinian fathers. And the other American cardinals, though not themselves religious, have all had experience of religious life. The Pope, who is big into synodality and the dynamics of religious communities, clearly likes that. So if you're looking to predict which rising stars in the American clergy may have red hats in their future, find guys who are center-left, who have some kind of global perspective and experience, and who have a taste of religious life, Odds are they'll do well. Final this week, we come to the small Italian locale of Ravello. It is in southern Italy on the Amalfi coast, very near Pompeii, south of Naples. There on the cliffs of Ravello, since the 13th century, has stood the convent of St. Clair. It is a convent that has been continually inhabited by religious sisters, Most recently, it has been run by the Urban Sisters of St. Clair of Italy. It's one of the various branches of the broad Franciscan family of religious communities. Those sisters run the monastery, run the convent, and in fact, because the convent is self-governing, they actually own it. Now, like so many other religious orders, their numbers have dwindled to the point where Recently, there are only three nuns actually living inside this big convent on the cliffs. One is 97 years old, who has been living there since 1955. The other two are younger one is an Italian, one is an Indian. And they wanted to stick around and take care of this 97 year old so that she wouldn't have to move. You know, she wouldn't have to leave this place where she's been, you know, for 70 years almost. Now, in 2021, however, the Vatican did a study, decided that it was unsustainable for such a small group of nuns to keep this large facility going, and so essentially they ordered it closed down, or they ordered these nuns to leave and said some other use has to be come up, we have to come up with some other use for this property. The nuns didn't like that, and so the two nuns who are taking care of this 97-year-old made a counteroffer. Basically, they said to the Vatican, look, we are going to sign over ownership of the convent. Oh, and by the way, over the centuries, because of gifts given to this convent, the sisters also own a bar and a restaurant and a hotel in the city of Ravello. The convent itself is estimated to be worth about 50 to 60 million euro. Those various commercial enterprises bring in about 200,000 euro in net profit every year. They offered to give all of that to the Vatican in exchange for allowing them to remain as long as the 97-year-old nun was alive. The Vatican's response to this proposal was, thanks, we'll take the property, but you still have to leave. And so they ordered these nuns to relocate. They were gonna send them, each of the three nuns, to three different convents in different parts of Italy. The two nuns taking care of the 97-year-old didn't like that, and so they basically said no and became the ecclesiastical equivalent of squatters. All this culminated last week with the Vatican issuing a new decree, basically kicking these nuns out of religious life, releasing them from their vows, saying you are no longer nuns, and ordering them to go and sending another community in to the convent to take over ownership of it. So the one nun who was an Italian who is from a little neighborhood in in the Naples area called Nola is going to go back and stay with her family for a little while while she decides what her next move is going to be the indian nun will go with her and they're going to try to discern together what the next act will be now look you know from one point of view you could say you know really who cares right i mean we're talking about the fate of three nuns one of whom at 97 doesn't really even know what's happening right now and probably, you know, the clock was ticking. This place was going to have to shut down. And so, in the end, you know, what's, what's the big deal? Well, I think the big deal is this. What it illustrates is a hard truth about the Catholic Church, which is, popes coming and go, guys. Popes may be liberal. They may be conservative. They may be traditional. They may be avant-garde. They may be first world. They may be third world. But, at the end of the day, they're still the pope and you defy their authority at your peril. An old friend of mine, a late American Jesuit by the name of Robert Taft, who once taught at the very institution, the Pontifical Oriental Institute in Rome, where we record this show every week in a small studio, Father Taft once said to me that if you want to swim in the Catholic pool, sooner or later, you have to make your peace with the lifeguard, the lifeguard meaning ecclesiastical authority and ultimately the Pope. And that's what this small little story out of Ravello illustrates. You know, at the end of the day, you have to make your peace with what the guy in charge wants, because if you don't, you can bob and weave all you want, but at the end of the day, you are going to lose, and you are going to lose huge. That is our show for this week. You can find full coverage of all these stories on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. Again, CruxNow. Your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be here next Tuesday. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.